If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What's the world's oldest alcoholic beverage? Why was wine believed to be medicinal? And did medieval people actually get drunk from sipping beer all day? In today's Everything You Want to Know episode, we're exploring the long and deeply impactful history of alcohol. To answer your questions on the subject, I was joined by Professor Phil Withington of the University of Sheffield. Thank you so much for joining me, Phil. Today on our Everything You Wanted to Know series, we're covering the history of alcohol. So obviously this is a huge topic covering millennia, but we'll try and offer an introduction for people to go and find out some more if they want to. To start us off, I've got an incredibly broad question for you. How has alcohol impacted human history? Uh, Thanks, Ellie. Well, I guess that depends what kind of history we're talking about. Um, But if we're talking about social history or the history of everyday life, um, then alcohol has had a massive impact uh, because it's been so important to so many aspects of everyday life. Uh, It's been one of the main sources of calories, of nutrition and medicine. 
um, in in many different cultures to a key of re- feature of religious rituals um, to the the main lubricants of sociability and social relationships um, to markers of class um, status and gender um, the the adage uh, we are what we drink as much as what we eat but if we're talking about economic history then alcohols have been equally significant in terms of um, the development of trade and commerce um, in terms of wine, for example, and beer, in in terms of industrial production of beer and spirits, uh, and in the emergence of um, large local, national and multinational companies. The, the alcohol industry is worth trillions today on a global scale. And, and if we're talking about political history, to give you the, the full trio, then it's been equally significant. Um, thinking about um, Britain, Parliament in the 17th century wouldn't have been able to afford to fight Charles I in the British Civil Wars without the money from the excise on beer and ale, which was introduced in 1642 to fund the, the war effort. And it's doubtful Britain could have afforded the navy um, that made the British Empire uh, without taxes on alcohols. I think um, alcohols and other drugs provided three quarters of public revenues by the middle of the 18th century, which obviously f- paid for all the sailors uh, and the ships and the soldiers. And then even slightly differently again, one wonders how many fateful political decisions were made under the influence of alcohol. Uh, Winston Churchill was alcohol dependent, and um, studies have shown the extent of alcohol and drug consumption among uh, leading Nazis um, at the same time. And other historians have shown just how important alcohol has been to representative bodies over the course of the centuries, be they in Sweden or or France. So, yeah, it would be interesting to know just how many of the decisions that changed the course of history were made under the influence. Yeah, so I think it's fair to say that alcohol has flowed beneath many, many significant and weighty topics in history, pardon the pun. But um, let's go back to the very beginning. Um, Swede in Hungary, great name on Twitter, has asked where the word alcohol comes from. Well, so I'm not an expert on etymology, but my understanding is that alcohol is derived from the Latin alcohol and its variants, which meant the essence or the spirit of a substance, um, usually derived through um, distillation. Um, So alcohol as a term to describe particular kinds of beverages was a much later development. We can trace that to the 18th century, but it was based on the idea that scientists had identified the actual essence of the substance that made it um, alcoholic. The kind of the link between essence and alcohol in the modern sense was the fact that alcohol of wine or spirit of wine became a very popular drink in its own right amongst Europeans from the 16th century. So now we've had a couple of questions about where alcohol originated. So Sequin Run on Instagram has asked, how was it first invented or discovered? And Agrobiodiverse has asked, is there any evidence of pre-Neolithic alcohol consumption? Okay, yeah, no, those are important and interesting questions, aren't they? Yeah, 
alcohol consumption was Neolithic. And I'll just give examples. Most of the archaeological work has been on beer and on wine. And for beer, the earliest archaeological evidence of fermentation, alcohol as produced through fermentation of sugars, consists of 13,000-year-old residues of a beer with the consistency of gruel, in fact, which was used by semi-nomadic Natufians um, for ritual feasting at the Rakafet Cave in the Karmel Mountains um, in Hafa in Israel. And there's evidence that beer was produced at the Gobekli Tepe uh, during the pre-pottery Neolithic, which was around 8,500 BC to 5,500 BC. And the earliest clear chemical evidence of beer produced from barley, which is what we would trace as our kind of the genealogy of, of modern beers, dates to about um, 3,500 to 3,100 BC from the site of Godon Tepe in the Zagros Mountains of Western Iran. Actually, that kind of part of the Near East, as we might see it from a European perspective, is a very important crucible of actually alcohol invention and production in the prehistorical period. So for wine, there are two stories. Uh, One of them is also linked to in Western Asia, again from the Neolithic period in the Haji Firuz in Iran, Um, And that dates from about 5,400 BC to 5,000 BC. Archaeologists have found a deposit of sediment preserved at the bottom of an amphora, which has been proven to have a mix of tannin and tartrate crystals, which would indicate wine. But there's an even earlier story um, in China, which seems to be completely separate, where we have residues on pottery shards, um, which radiocarbon has dated to around 7,000, 6,600 BC. And that's at the Neolithic site of Jiayu. And that seems to have come from fermented rice, honey, and fruit. So Europe is actually a bit later in terms of these innovations. What does strike me from your answer there is that This is a global story. People across different cultures and across the world were discovering and innovating in alcohol consumption. But on Twitter, V. Ananya has asked, why did people drink alcohol originally? Do we have any evidence that gives us a suggestion of that? In terms of the archaeological evidence, it's obviously very difficult to fit kind of the meanings and the ideas and the kind of the motivations around consumption. A lot of this consumption does seem to relate to kind of ritualized sociability and kind of ritualized worship. So there's that kind of element which we would be familiar with in, you know, later Christian and I suppose secular 20th century era. You still have those kind of factors as a reason for consumption. When kind of written records and textual records start to survive, the kind of the the additional motivations for alcohol consumption, again, are fairly constant and remain the same. Um, There's a strong medical element. Alcohol is a hugely important feature of certainly the classical medical tradition, which we as Europeans inherited via Arabic sources in the second millennia. But also alcohol is a hugely important feature of diet for nutrition and through for calories until the 19th century. And that's one of the main reasons, say for example in Britain, 
why beer consumption is so extensive. It was a kind of, it wasn't simply for pleasure that people drank, it was for actually nutrition and for calories to keep them going alongside bread. So you have a kind of lots of very necessary reasons for alcohol consumption, ranging from the kind of dietary through to the ritualistic. But then, of course, overlaid on that, and what makes it such an interesting substance, as opposed to perhaps bread, as a comparison, is that you have that the possibility of intoxication as well, and the fact that it does have psychoactive effects on the, on the brain and the body. And so there's always that element of altered state that potentially goes with kind of the more mundane consumption practices. Moving forward a few centuries to the medieval era, I think there's a general perception of the medieval era that everybody was drinking ale or beer all day long. But is that true? And if people drank beer rather than water, were they actually getting drunk from it? Okay, so there, um, there's gradations. There were gradations of beer and ale based on the quality of the ingredients, the length of time that fermentation took place and the fermentation process. And so the strength of the brew that was produced and it's the gradations kind of basically covered by terms small beer, medium beer and strong beer or small ale, etc., etc. And although it's a myth that people never drank water, small beer was um, an integral feature of British diets and was drunk at all times during the day from breakfast through to your, your last um, drink at night. But because it's small and because the, you know, the um, alcohol content wouldn't have been significant, it doesn't follow that everybody is um, extremely drunk all the time or that you know, it was a population of functioning alcoholics as we would understand it. That said, you're more likely to have access or able be able to afford the stronger beers if you're actually wealthier. A lot of consumption and production went on in homes. Uh, it was domestic. Or if you lived in a monastic setting, um, colleges, university colleges, which would have been in Oxford and Cambridge and monasteries, they also had um, large brewery facilities. So there's a likelihood that if you're in that setting or, in, or coming from a rickshaw background, you might well have been more drunk more of the time than people uh, lower down the social order. And Mike Plant has actually asked a question about small beer that you mentioned there and has asked whether it's true that beer was safer to drink than water in this period. So the difference between ale and beer is beer essentially has hops added to it, which and the, the production process is slightly different. So beer become, is more durable, it, it lasts longer, but it can also be moved around, whereas ale tends to be kind of drunk locally where it's produced and doesn't last as long. So small beer and ale, both of those drinks were safer because they'd been through a kind of heating process to actually get made. But as I said previously, water itself wasn't as kind of as much a no-no as, as we tend to think today. Obviously, in kind of very crowded urban settings and places where you have sewage close to original water sources, beverages that have been heated become more important. But elsewhere, it would have been possible to access um, clean, fresh water. So now I wonder if we could take a more global look at things, a bit of a comparative global look. So we've had a couple of questions in um, from James Dallin and Lilithgo. 
about how alcohol consumption developed differently in different parts of the world over history. The great archaeologist of peculiar substances, as he described them, Andrew Sherat, he'd long ago noted uh, that while it seems all societies, all human societies, have sought out and used psychoactive substances, and, and what I, in my own work, like to call intoxicants, what and how they consume them is very much dependent on local, social, economic, technological, political, and cultural circumstances, not to mention environmental and ecological opportunities. So Sherat, he draws attention as well to the, the starkest example of different developments in consumption, which were sort of political and cultural in origins, and that's between Judeo-Christian and Islamic societies in the first millennium AD, when Islamic culture, almost as a kind of um, act of resistance and conflict and contrast against the Judeo-Christian, took a much harder line on alcohol in their diets, despite the fact that alcohol was obviously accessible. So that's that's one example. But also within Europe, you obviously have the kind of those big general differences between societies that have predominantly drunk wine or predominantly drunk beer, um, mainly for ecological and environmental reasons and climatic reasons, rather than so much the, the political and cultural. Although over time, the kind of the physical factors do become ingrained in the in the cultural decisions. One of the interesting things about alcohol consumption is that it's kind of is kind of universal almost, apart from the Islamic example being the most important contradiction to that, but it almost the exception that proves the rule. It is it is universal across time and space, but it's always extremely specific in terms of the local dynamics or aspects of that consumption. Leading on from that, Delaga Boy has asked why some cultures had less exposure to alcohol than others. You obviously mentioned religion there and you mentioned environment. Is there anything else that you'd throw into the mix? I think culture as a kind of big single thing is always a bit dangerous. So within cultures as well, you're going to have obviously differences due to, we mentioned earlier that if you were richer, say in medieval or pre-modern Europe, you were more likely to afford stronger beer and ale for example or wine for that matter but also gender and I think we're going to talk about this a bit later but gender as well is always going to be a factor in in differentiating the way in which people are allowed to drink alcohol or not allowed to drink alcohol and and then beyond that within cultures legitimacy is a really important concept what what is legitimate consumption and what is illegitimate consumption. And that that is going to vary for a whole host of reasons from one culture to the next. So it's difficult to kind of talk in general terms because the specifics are going to be so particular. But I guess with alcohol, one of the factors that we always have to bear in mind is the fact that they have this, this powerful intoxicating quality. So a lot of the specifics in relation to what people are allowed to drink and what they're not allowed to drink will be somehow linked to that. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There's a very interesting project being run from Bristol University and I think it's TCD or it might be UCD in Dublin called Cult. And they they are reconstructing beers that were drunk.
This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Well, let's move on to regulation now then. So Grace Mack has asked about when alcohol has been banned through history and when this was first considered. Well, uh, um, we just mentioned the Islamic prohibitions, which were targeted against the kind of Judeo-Christian habits of consumption, which Islamic peoples would have shared in before the, the revolutions of the early millennium. But all societies in general will have conventions regarding appropriate and legitimate consumption. And, and I suppose the thing to bear in mind that these can be imposed formally, and these are the things that we kind of remember and study in, in history lessons and so on, but they're also imposed informally as well in ways that we aren't necessarily aware of, which aren't obvious. So there, And there's also many ways to regulate consumption without imposing complete bans from taxation through to sumptuary laws, which kind of are supposed to, are laws which are supposed to regulate the consumption of different genders and different classes, but also through to self-regulation, which has probably been the most important form of control throughout history. Ideas of self-discipline and how you should look after yourself and how you should deport yourself, which have kind of really informed consumption practices. And while movements and campaigns to encourage temperance and the reformation of manners, as they're called, fairly common in Western societies, outright prohibition has been much less usual. So the kind of the prohibition and bans which you find in early 20th century America and parts of Europe, for example, in Sweden, they were quite unusual in, in taking it that kind of temperance idea to to an extreme. I wonder if you could go into a little bit more detail about some examples there. So you mentioned obviously prohibition in America in the early 20th century, which I think is the the prohibition that, that most people would be most familiar with. But KB the Ginger has asked that besides prohibition in America, what other acts have tried to outlaw alcohol? Well, I suppose the most famous one and certainly for an anglo-american audience and and also one that actually 
brings out those nuances relating to class and gender that we were talking about a bit earlier in terms of who's exposed or or is allowed to drink different kinds of alcohol is the the legislation and the campaigning around the gin craze in the first half of the 18th century in London. So gin, or as it was known at the time, Geneva, was a kind of mass-produced spirit, distilled liquor as opposed to a fermented liquor. And distilled liquors became popular in the second half of the 17th century, so from around about 1650. So you have these imports of spirits, which become a real feature of the British, or certainly the London diet, the alcohol diet, in the 17th century. Uh, But then contemporaries start to become very concerned about the uh, consumption of these spirits, which are much, much stronger than the traditional wine and beer. Um, They become very concerned about the consumption of poor people, and they become concerned about the consumption of women. And so you have this very prejudiced and targeted attack on consumption of gin through press um, and media, through William Hogarth's very famous images of Gin Lane and Beer Street from 1751, through to sermonising and treaties and, and, and so on and so on, and parliamentary legislation getting passed to make the consumption of Geneva extremely difficult and prohibitive for the women and for the, the lower orders. And I guess that's a nice example because it isn't, outright prohibition, the kind of the drinking habits of the upper classes or even the middle classes is is fine and left unregulated, but you have this very deliberate and targeted attack on the poor and female drinking. And it's very striking that when we have our own little gin crazes in the 20th or 21st centuries, when the tabloids run pictures of binge drinking and so on, it tends to be women who are on, in the photographs being depicted as out of control. So on the point of female drinking, it's a really interesting question that Jez Hughes has asked about it. What have been the gender differences in alcohol consumption through history? I'm guessing that that's different between different cultures over time. But I wonder if you could also say anything about perceptions or attitudes to women drinking as well. Yeah, no, for sure. It's a, it's a very interesting and very important question. Ironically, given I've been stressing the kind of the local specificity and cultural differences over time and space, I guess one of the more constant and universal things is that over his, over time, women have generally been excluded from a lot of the consumption, the alcohol consumption of men, particularly in its more pleasurable, recreational and also public elements. So female consumption tends to be, has tended to be domestic, and it's tended to be much more related to the absolutely necessary kinds of consumption related to medicine, uh, nutrition, and diet generally. Women have also had a very important relationship to the production of alcohol and the serving of alcohol to men. In domestic production, it was often women who were in charge of the brewing process, for example, in in medieval England. And they were often actually the retailers. They ran alehouses and inns and taverns and so on. And they were the serving maids within those, but it was the, the men who were consuming. 
So I think gin, the gin craze, which we've just mentioned, brought out that kind of very ingrained gender difference in appropriate consumption across the genders. But this means that the change in the 20th century, sort of post-Second World War, and the increasing ability of women in kind of Western societies in particular to start to partake in kind of public consumption that's similar to men and isn't necessarily dependent on the presence of other men to do it is actually kind of seismic in as a disjunction between previous differentiations and what women are allowed to do now. So that that actually is is, is one of the, if you were going to say what is a distinctive feature of uh, progress in terms of gender equality, say in modern Britain, then the fact that all bar one was founded and women now go out and drink together in ways that men go out and drink together is, is pretty emblematic of, of that development. I wasn't expecting all bar one to get a mention in this podcast. But um, (laughs) just to move on to a couple of questions about scientific understanding of drinking. Nasty Basket on Twitter has asked when people discovered that you couldn't give a baby alcohol. And connected to that, when was it understood that pregnant women also should probably not drink alcohol? Okay, so it it depends on the on the kind of alcohol we're talking about. Small beer, which we mentioned earlier, was the a very weak fermented substance like small ale and a watered down wine. That was a staple of maternal diets into the nineteenth century. At the same time, it was well known back to ancient times that distilled liquors could cause potential problems with the child and and the mother. So that there's always been that distinction, and that distinction probably became kind of collapsed into each other and when scientific links began to be made about the relationship between alcohol as, um, as the, the chemical and its impact on the body and those became codified in the 1960s and 1970s I think. And when did the idea of drinking alcohol only in moderation emerge or has it been around for a really long time? Ah, no. So the idea of moderation is probably as old as alcohol itself, if we could go back to the Neolithic period and actually, you know, understand what they were thinking and saying. And it's very, very prominent in classical culture in in Greek and and Roman culture, which is a, a huge influence, obviously, on certainly on European and Anglo-American culture. And it's probably been the main form of regulation, this idea of moderation, moderate consumption, drinking what's enough, um, preventing yourself going over that threshold where you lose control. It has been around as long as um, alcohol itself has been around. And I suppose one of the interesting things about kind of modern developments in terms of regulation and attempts to prohibit through law and so on is that, and to treat alcohol as a disease as well, there's been a medicalization of excessive consumption in the 20th century is that these principles of moderation and the kind of the responsibility of the self uh, for the self have to some extent been undermined or the responsibility has been shifted to the state or to doctors and the, the medical professions. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about attitudes towards alcoholism and alcohol dependency and whether that was recognised in earlier centuries before, as you say, it was medicalised. There's a very old, very venerable 
concept called denoted by the idea of custom as second nature, which, like many ideas in modern Western culture, were derived from the ancients, from the, the Greeks and Romans. And custom by second nature traced the process by where something that is an external habit such as drinking alcohol, that you do regularly becomes so important to your constitution through the social activity that you actually embed it in your nature. So your nature actually changes in relationship to the custom itself. And this was used as a term, certainly it gets picked up quite intensively in the 17th century uh, to describe people who we would otherwise describe as probably addicts or dependents in terms of their consumption. But the adaption of the language of addict itself to start to describe alcohol dependency as a disease, that's kind of somewhat later. That takes place at the end of the 18th century into the 19th century, which is also, of course, when alcohol as the property of these beverages as the kind of the, the chemical operative agent has also been identified and separated um, from the beverage itself. So in that respect, the scientific identification of alcohol as a chemical property and the identification of a dependency as a kind of disease or addiction, they happen at the same time. I wonder if we could talk now in a bit more depth about something you alluded to earlier in the podcast, which is the other uses of alcohol beyond um, consumption and enjoyment. So Sigma Librarian has asked whether people have ever used alcohol as currency. There is one, definitely one context where alcohol has been used as currency. It was very much a feature of the exchange that used to go on between Europeans and kind of African leaders in the exchange of slaves, the development of the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade in the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, seems to, alcohol seems to have been very important in terms of facilitating that kind of exchange relationship upon which the slave trade was based. And that kind of exchange is probably best understood not as gift giving. So there would be an element of gift giving of alcohol and other interesting objects that were of value to the African leaders by the Europeans. And there would also probably some kind of feasting that would go on as well in relationship to that exchange. And there's been some very interesting new work on this kind of exchange culture uh, that's been conducted at the moment about alcohol in, in relation to the African-European relations. It's, it's quite interesting because it brings in alternative modes of currency and economic exchange beyond the simply monetary, which we understand today, and this, this kind of dimension of gift-giving and feasting as well. And to pick up on something you mentioned earlier, I wonder if you could give us some examples of when alcohol has been used as medicine through time. Since medical recipes and medical knowledge has survived, you'll find alcohol as a key feature. Wine in particular has had a hugely important role in medicine, so much so, in fact, that I guess if you talk to a historian of medicine, they would probably not even notice it because it's so ubiquitous in terms of the, the compound and simple medicines that were produced you know, since the Greek and the Roman through to the 19th century at least. 
again, there's an d- interesting distinction between fermented and distilled in that spirits were much more dangerous as medicines and recognized as such, although they, they might still be used in cordials and fortifiers to, to build up emotional and physical resilience in the face of disease and so on. Yeah, but the, the history of medicine is also the history of alcohol to a large extent, I would say. Can you tell us a bit more about how alcohol has been connected to ritual over time? Yeah, yeah. So again, there's the, it's a, this is one of the perennials like the, like the medicinal and sometimes they intersect. Uh, alcohol consumption in South America, for example, amongst the, the pre-Columbian in quotes, invasions and so on, um, seems to have been very ritualistic in, it, in its nature and based around various ways of communing with the gods and the spirit world and the natural world and so on. Obviously, the adaptation of wine by early Christian churches and so on, A, reflected the immediate ritualistic significance of alcohol at the time, but it also reflected a longer inheritance dating again back from the ancient Greek and the Roman through to their present day in terms of how important wine had been in kind of ritualized worship, but also ritual in the smaller sense of sociability as well. And I think it would be most rituals within those societies, those cultures, I would probably hazard a generalization have involved some kind of alcoholic content obviously you don't have that with the islamic world although even there historians have found that there was some kind of pockets of resistance and so on to the prohibitions that were established interesting so now i'm going to move us on to our final few questions um this may be impossible to answer but i'll throw it to you anyway when do you think that people consumed the most alcohol in history (laughs) I think it is probably impossible to answer. I guess what you could say as, a, as an answer to this is if you think of the modern world as, I don't know, the late 19th through to the, the, the present time, this separation that has taken place between alcohol as pleasure and as a source of excess and alcohol as a kind of nutritional, calorific, medicinal sociable necessity that is extremely significant and obviously affects levels of consumption accordingly because it isn't kind of a drip drip consumption of everyday practices that it was in the past but that said the the strength of alcohol probably in the you know over the last 50 years or whatever probably has become more regulated and regularized and stronger so, and when people do participate in recreational consumption, um, they might well be drinking more units of alcohol than they, they would have done in the past. So that's how I would probably frame it. It's probably alcohol is probably stronger today, um, but it's actually used less ubiquitously, but more intensely. And so finally, I just wonder if you have any historical alcohol recipes that you would share with our listeners? Yeah, I do, actually. I I thought we might as well get a bit Christmassy. So this is from Anna Woolley's book of 1670, which is called The Queen-Like Closet or the Rich Cabinet, stored with all manner of rare receipts, which is, uh, they went by recipes, for preserving, candying and cookery, very pleasant and beneficial to all ingenious persons of the female sex. 
and it's from page 155 in that book. I should just add that Anne, Hannah Woolley is a, a great writer, one of the first, what I suppose we would call professional female writers in the 17th century, professional in the sense that she made her living from it, but also one of the most popular writers in general. So she was a, she was a bestseller. And her recipe, which is a punch recipe, it's an early punch recipe, is to take one quart of claret wine, which would be about two pints today, half a pint of brandy, and a little nutmeg grated, a little sugar, and the juice of a lemon, and so drink it. And I think that might well get your Christmas Day celebrations off to a very good start if you went for that. Absolutely. One final question I wanted to ask you was, if you could drink any alcoholic beverage from history, what would you choose? Well, I've got a few thoughts on this, I suppose. I'd be very intrigued to taste the early cocktails that started to be made in 19th century America, I think, because of the development of cocktail culture. And there's been some interesting work on these. Actually, it's not just America. There's also a London dimension to it. So kind of the early transatlantic cocktails would be very interesting, I think, as I'm someone who likes a cocktail. So it'd be interesting to see what they were doing beyond the kind of the punch and so on, which comes popular from the late 17th century in English metropolitan quarters. I'd also, I'd be very interested to taste the quality of the different wines that's... So in the, in the 17th century, you have a huge increase in the amount of wines, both in volume and in variety, that are coming into, that are being imported into Britain from France and Iberia and, and Germany. Austria and so on in Italy. I'd be very interested to taste the quality of those and to see how they compare to what we understand today as classic wine varieties and so on. Because it'd be very interesting to know, you know, when our modern understandings of taste actually emerge. Similarly, it'd be very interesting to do the same for beers, I think, and ales. And the and that's actually more doable. There's a very interesting project being run from Bristol University and I think it's TCD or it might be UCD in Dublin called Cult. And they, they are reconstructing beers that were drunk in Ireland in the um, 17th century. So it'd be, it is, and finding actually that the quality is very high and very similar to what we would understand as good beer today. So I think those kinds of um, comparisons would be very interesting to me. That was Professor Phil Withington from the University of Sheffield. If you'd like to find out more about the history of food as well as drink, then last Christmas I was joined by the culinary historian Dr Annie Gray for a series on Christmas feasts through the ages. Just search for Christmas Feasts to bring that up. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 